Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to open them, please, through uh, one of the passages that we have been working our way through, Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 26. Galatians 5, starting in verse 13 through to 26. And we've been looking at what it means to walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Well, one of the one of the things worth pointing out here is that it's a command. I don't know if we think of it as a command, but it's a command. It's something that we as Christians are called to do. It's an imperative. Walk in the Spirit. And we all know why this is so necessary. There is a war. There is a conflict raging in every believer. It's a battle between the flesh and the Spirit, one opposing the other. They fight against each other. The, the spirit starts to work and the flesh starts to groan and grumble and resist. And then the flesh starts to work and the spirit resists. And the flesh sometimes prevents the believer from doing the things they want to do. You want to be patient, but you aren't. You want to forgive, but you can't. You wonder, how is this overcome? Want to be joyful, but I'm not having a lot of joy. It's overcome by walking in the Spirit. If you walk in the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then in verse 19, Paul begins a partial list of sins and vices that are common to the flesh and are overcome by keeping in step with the Spirit. But it's not enough just to overcome works of the flesh. That's not sufficient. The work of the flesh must be replaced by the fruit of the Spirit. You could say it this way. Putting sin to death is not sanctification. Putting sin to death is not sanctification. It's, it's only a portion of it. It's only half of it. Colossians 3.5, it, it begins with a section on putting sin to death, and it has a list of sins similar to those here in Galatians. But then in verse 12 of Colossians 3, he tells, Paul tells the Colossians what they ought to do instead. Put on Christ. Put off the flesh. Put on Christ. Put, put the flesh to death. Live in the Spirit. This may be why... Some of you here struggle and seem to struggle so much against sin with so little progress. All of your efforts, rightly so, they're aimed at, at tearing the sin down and the idols down and smashing them to pieces. And then in the spot where the idol was, when that's empty, you dust off your hands, you think, job well done, mission complete. And then you're surprised when in a few days it seems like the idol has reestablished itself there in your life. The sin has come back. Why has this happened? Well, nothing has come in and taken its place. It's like the parable Jesus told, maybe you remember, of the man who was possessed by a demon. The demon was driven out. It wandered through desolate places. And then when it returned, it found its previous home was cleaned up. It was in good order. It was ready to receive guests. And it was totally empty. And so seeing it vacant, he moves back in with seven of his friends more vile than himself. And if we aim 
If all we do is aim to put off sin and never put on the Spirit, then we can never have any kind of lasting victory over the flesh. Ephesians 4.28, it says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather work with his hands and be generous to those in need. It says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth anymore, but only what is fit for building up. A few verses earlier, put away falsehood and what well, in its place speak what is true, speak the truth. And this principle, it's, it's easy to apply. Right? Don't be greedy, be generous. And when you, when you tear down jealousy, build up contentment. And when you uproot bitterness and resentment, plant forgiveness in its place. Put off the flesh, put the flesh to death, put on the spirit, live in the spirit. That's the requirement. And then this morning, in particular, we're going to look at what it means to put on peace and patience. Putting on peace and patience. So Galatians 5, 13 through 26. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Well, let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would bless our time together. Lord, I pray that we would see, Lord, sin never blesses. It, it whispers in our ears that it is good for us. It whispers to us that, that you are holding out on us and withholding something good, and we have to go against you to get it. Isn't that the lie that sin told Adam and Eve in the garden? And it's a lie that persists Ever since, it will be good for you to get angry. It will be good for you to avenge yourself. Lord, I pray that you would show us that your ways are better. And nobody truly suffers in the eternal sense ever from doing your word. Lord, by doing your will, 
we experience the blessedness of having you as our God. And I pray this morning that we would all see how blessed it is to walk in the Spirit. Lord, that even if trials and suffering comes, we have great reason to rejoice. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help me to preach and help us to hear, Lord. Fill this place, Lord, with a greater manifestation of the work of your Holy Spirit and your power in our own lives, Lord, work in that way that we would be more like Jesus Christ, more like Your Son, and image and honor You. Thank You, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If we are not inclined to peace and to patience, we are not equipped to live in this world. For in this world, we not only will, but must and so must expect to meet with many injuries from our fellow man. We do not dwell in a world of purity and innocence and love, but in one that is fallen and corrupt and miserable and wicked. One that is indisputably under the reign and dominion of sin. The principle of divine love that once reigned in the heart of man is extinguished, and that principle now reigns only in a few, and even then, to a very imperfect degree. Jonathan Edwards, Charity and Its Fruits, chapter 4. In that chapter, he is reminding the believer of something they ought to already know, that we live in a fallen world. And in this fallen world, one thing that we ought to expect is to be annoyed and irritated and face malice and hatred from other people. One of the things that best equips a person to overcome such adversity is a peaceable, long-suffering temperament. And so Edwards continues. This world is a place where the devil who is called the God of this world has influence and dominion and where multitudes are possessed by his spirit. Men do not have faith. They are not governed by things like justice and truth and kindness. This is why the Lord Jesus said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And so those who do not have a spirit with a meek, calm, and long-suffering composure, which alone allows them to bear such injuries as they will face in a world like this, they will be miserable indeed and are likely to be wretched every step of their way through this life. If every injury we meet and every reproach and every unjust deed, if it puts our hearts into an uproar and robs us of our calm and of our peace, we will have no enjoyment, no contentment, and instead be kept in perpetual turmoil. Those who have their spirits heated and enraged and rising in bitter resentment when they are offended act as if some strange thing were happening to them. It is not strange. To think that way is folly, for it is no strange thing, but only what is to be expected living in a world like this. Now what Jonathan Edwards is saying in that quote, and, uh, and if you go to look for it, it's, it's not exact, it's a paraphrase, but what he's saying is this, for a Christian to survive in this world, he must have peace and patience. And the reason why they're so necessary is because they will so often have to be used. Right? If you're going to walk in snowdrifts, 
you're going to be miserable unless you have a pair of snowshoes. If you're going to be out in the dark, you're going to be lost if you don't have a flashlight. If you're going to be out in, in the river and going to sail a river, you need a boat. And if you're going to live in this fallen, sin-filled world, you're going to need both patience and peace to get through it. And you know this is, this is true. There are going to be, or there, there probably already have been many people uh, who have offended you or hurt you or provoked you, whatever. It's just going to happen. Even amongst Christians, it's going to happen. And, and you shouldn't be surprised when it does. In fact, you should expect it to happen. All right, wives, husbands, you look at each other, look at your children, look at your neighbors, think of your co-workers, and anybody else that you interact with often enough, they are going to eventually in some way, one way or another, hurt you, injure your pride, offend you, something. It's going to happen. You can't avoid it. Most of these people probably already have. They could have just this very morning. And though you may be feeling all kinds of things when it happens, the one thing you shouldn't be is surprised. You know that you live in a fallen world. You, you know that even those made alive by the Holy Spirit are still very imperfect people. I forget who it was. He said, imagine the, the best Christian you know. They're probably maybe one or two percent sanctified. You know the world is in the dominion of the evil one. You know that temptations exist around every corner. And you know that you yourself even do the same thing to others. So don't be surprised when you have to draw on peace and patience to endure these inevitable difficulties. Christians, you of all people have been told and have been prepared in advance and have been outfitted to maintain your peace and your patience when trials come and they will come. You may be in one right now. We must have peace and patience. So let's take a look at them in order. First, peace. Probably the most definitive verse on peace in the Bible, the peace of God, in my estimation, it's John 14, 27. John 14, 27, it says this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives you, I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives you do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Well, this passage tells us really everything we need to know about the peace that comes from God. It's not like the world. It's the same peace that Christ possessed, and it prevents our hearts from being troubled and fearful. And so it's, it's a different kind of peace than the kind of peace the world can offer or know or understand. It's not like world peace. Now with a war in Ukraine and, and nations fighting against nations. Um, you know, really for some time, nations fighting against nations uh, was something thought an impossibility. Everybody got together and thought, you know, it's 2022, we're past this warfare kind of thing. A very naive kind of thinking on the world stage. 
Nations have warred against one another for thousands and thousands of years, and until Christ returns, there will be wars and rumors of wars. It's not going to stop. But this idea of peace, it's, it's probably on people's minds now more than it has been in a long time. They're thinking about it. They're praying for it. They're working toward it, which are all good things. But what is the goal? How is this peace defined? Well, one definition is to stop the fighting. Peace means there are two nations or two groups of people no longer at war. It stops the guns from being fired. It stops the bombs from being dropped. It stops people from being killed and the lands being ravished. And that's the goal, and it's called peace. At the war, but it isn't truly peace, is it? It's only the absence of conflict. And all the hatred, all of the ambition, all of the animosity, all of the capacity for killing and death that, that began the war in the first place, it still remains, doesn't it? That hasn't gone anywhere in this kind of peace. It's simply restrained and easily broken. Islam has a similar notion of peace. Sometimes you'll hear that Islam is a religion of peace. That's what you hear. But the word peace being used there would be better understood as the word submission. And in Islam, the goal is peace through submission. And that peace will be achieved when all opposition has been crushed or subdued. And the picture of, of this kind of peace given in the Quran is, is the kind of peace that is achieved when the boot is on the neck of the, of the conquered and the scimitar in the hand ready to strike. There is peace. Kind of. Or there is a kind of false peace. A peace that isn't really in any sense of the word peace, but one that is born out of intimidation or cowardice. Now, I think of the appeasement in the 1930s. Uh, Germany was snatching up land left and right, and the Allies, fearful of of an observably inescapable war, but fearful of it nevertheless, they would give the Nazis whatever they wanted, thinking that they would be appeased, thinking that they would stop. And in fact, there's an iconic picture of Neville Chamberlain, who was the Prime Minister of uh, the United Kingdom at the time, and he, he gets off a plane having just returned from a, a peace conference with Germany and France and uh, uh, to decide in that conference what they were going to do with Czechoslovakia, which Hitler wanted, and Czechoslovakia wasn't invited. Well, they decided that in order to secure peace, they would carve out a, a section of Czechoslovakia called the Sudetenland, and they would give it to Germany. And so, Prime Minister Chamberlain, returning from this conference, he's there on the tarmac holding a piece of paper over his head, giving a speech to the, the crowd and the reporters gathered around that he had secured peace for our time. The year was 1938. There was no peace. Appeasement is not peace. It does not bring peace. Or there is what is commonly called peace of mind. And peace of mind, what's that? Well, peace of mind is that feeling of security one has when his person or his possessions are safe. There's no anxiety. There's no fear of loss. Uh, one might install a security camera in his home to give him peace of mind. They might provide a fall alert system to an aging parent or, or go to the hospital even after they're starting to feel well. And all of those things are done for peace of mind. And there is some truth to this as, as, a, as a Christian. The peace the Lord gives us is a peace that liberates us from anxious fears. We saw that in, in John 14, 27. Peace I give to you. Do not be afraid. But 
the difference between Christian peace and peace of mind is really so vast, it's beyond comparison. Peace of mind comes from the assurance that a crisis will be avoided. It'll be avoided. But the peace that God gives allows you to pass through the crisis calmly. It allows a crisis to be avoided. I have an alarm system in my house that gives me peace of mind. How does that give me peace of mind? If somebody breaks in, it's going to ring, they're going to run off. I have peace of mind. Uh, my investments are secure. I have peace of mind. No matter where the economy goes, they'll be safe. Peace of mind. Christian peace is not like that. Peace of mind is the assurance that you will not have to endure trouble or a trial. But the peace that Christ gives liberates you from fear even in the midst of trials and troubles. Christian peace is not like world peace. And the greatest peace we have and the greatest peace we know is peace with God. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God since we have been justified. God was against us, and we were against Him. And this is true for every human being who has ever lived, except for one. They were hostile to God. They were enemies of God. And so were we. We are, as we were told by nature, children of wrath. But God has made peace with us through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. And there is a kind of peace here totally unknown to the world around us. Because it does not signal merely the end of hostilities. It's not that it's it's not a kind of peace that comes from being pressed down in submission. It's not a kind of peace that comes from knowing, well, now I am secure and nothing bad could ever happen to me in this earth. It's not a kind of peace where God grants us amnesty and now we can go back to living in the city of destruction. It's not only the laying down of arms. Now in this peace, there is reconciliation. All animosity, all aggression, all enmity and antagonism is wiped away. And in its place comes love and forgiveness and adoption and deliverance. That's the kind of peace that comes from God. It's the peace that makes His enemies into His friends. It's a peace that replaces all hatred with love. And where at one time we would lay down our lives in war against God and against His goodness, now we would gladly lay our, down our lives for Him and for His service. And you see this kind of peace illustrated in the life of every believer, but I think you see it especially in the life of the Apostle Paul. As he was on his way to Damascus to have Christians captured and killed, the Lord came and appeared to him and made peace with Paul. Paul was so overcome by Christ that from that point onward, all of his affections, all of his ambitions changed. He went from being a persecutor to being a preacher. He went from being a man ready to kill Christ and kill Christians to a man willing to die for Christ and for the church, which eventually he would die for Christ. Let's say, what kind of peace is this? This is the peace of God. It's characterized by relationships being restored, by creating new relationships that are so strong that no previous hostilities could separate them. And this kind of peace the world simply does not know. 
It does not know it anywhere outside of God and Christ. I mean, imagine the Jews. Having been, having been released from their camps in 1945, embracing the Nazis, and the Nazis accepting them and caring for them, shamed for what they had done. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine Israel and Iran? I mean, they're presently at peace. But imagine them becoming two of the most tightly knit nations in history, each having a great affinity for the other. Or imagine, even with all of the destruction and death delivered in the Ukraine, the people in those two nations at war, imagine them not only laying down their arms, but forgiving one another and embracing one another and every person afflicted and affected by that terrible war committing themselves to the good and the well-being of those who hours ago were their enemies. It is inconceivable. You cannot imagine anywhere in the world doing this. Yet, this is exactly the kind of peace you received when you were justified by faith. It's the kind of peace that you have if you know God. Peace that is born from total forgiveness that grows into reconciliation. And yet even this, though it is the foundation and the motivation for our peace, it's not what's in view when we read of the fruit of peace in Galatians 5.22. We're not talking about here the peace that we have with God. We aren't even speaking of assurance of this peace with God. We are talking here about the kind of peace our peace with God produces. One that endures hardship without causing strife. One that gives us a spirit of calmness, and that spirit of calmness preserves our peace with other people. It's what enables us to strive to live and to be at peace with all people so long as it depends on us. And if you wonder what that looks like, well, it looks like exactly what you have received from God. Matthew 5:11 Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God making peace with others makes you like God you know when we think of uh, when we think of children of sons we think in terms of biology don't we a son is the male offspring of a mother and a father and that was certainly true in Jesus day but there was more to it than just biology and you see that in this verse a son was someone who acted like or imitated their father. And that's the meaning of the word when it's used here. Someone who strives to make peace and be a peacemaker and to have peace, they are doing what their father in heaven has done for them. They're imitating God. And that's what we're called to, to have the same spirit about us as our Lord, to be peaceable, not always to be at war with others over differences of opinion that do not pertain to biblical principle. But not always to be at war with others over offenses given, but rather aim to love them and do kindness to them and to restore understandings and relationships. And not only to do that, but all the while maintaining a peace about us that is not easily ruffled or ruined. And that's what this fruit is. That's what is being spoken of when we are told the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. It's a kind of peace that imitates God. When you sin against the Lord, He does not burst out against you in rage. 
but disciplines you for your good and for His glory. He maintains His calm. And that's what we are called to. To treat others as God has treated us. To maintain our calm and not to be easily disturbed or easily upset. Not to cause hostility with others. And that is the broad meaning of what we are called to as Christians and what the Spirit of God is working in us. A calm and peaceable spirit that produces calm and peaceable relationships. However, this peace is absolutely impossible without patience. These are really two parts of one whole. They go together. You really cannot have one without the other. And though it might be possible for a person to have have one fruit of the Spirit in abundance and another to a lesser degree, right? they might have joy and and struggle maybe with self-control. They might have they might have a, a faithfulness and struggle sometimes with joy. But you cannot have peace without patience or patience without peace. You know, as a young and immature believer, I used to read the Bible and I remember I would read and I would read patience. I would say, patience, okay. What's, what's that mean? Patience. I'll be patient. It means waiting. So I will, I will be patient. I will wait an extra five minutes for something that I wanted to happen immediately. And when that five minutes came and went, I thought, okay, maybe uh, I've been waiting a long time, but five more minutes. And I think that's it. Five more minutes and patience is exhausted. And that's what I thought patience was. Uh, We're waiting a short amount of time for something that I wanted immediately. Maybe it was to leave for a trip, or maybe it was to make a purchase, or, or to get something to eat, or something like that. And I would be the same towards people. If someone was giving me a hard time, I would bite my tongue, and I would count down the minutes until I had figured I'd waited long enough to satisfy patience demands. Waited long enough so I could say, I was patient, maybe five, ten minutes, suffering at the hands of this individual, and then put an end to the whole patience thing. You can imagine how surprised I was when after studying Scripture I realized or began to realize that patience wasn't measured in hours or minutes but in years and decades and lifetimes. Hebrews 6.15 in particular and Abraham having waited patiently obtained the promise he waited 25 years till he was 100 years old. Patience waits a long time. But not only is patience long-lasting. In fact, actually, if you read in Scripture, the, the limit on patience, the limit on patience is really however long it takes. When you read about the patience that God manifests in the Old Testament, it's in terms of generations. And for patience to be truly of the Spirit of God, for us, it, it really does not have an upper limit. But even this kind of patience... This waiting to receive something, it actually is only a minor aspect of what it means to bear the fruit of patience. The word is sometimes translated as long-suffering, and that gets closer to it. Those who possess this trait are willing to suffer for extended periods of time. The word comes from uh, the King James, older English, uh, where suffering meant not so much a trial, but 
to endure a trial, to suffer a trial. You would endure it well. And so, long enduring. But you can go even further back than that. Because in the Greek, there are a few words that could be translated as patience. One is hupomene, and that means literally to remain under. Right? It has the idea of endurance, which to be sure, Christians are called to. That's one of the words that the Bible translates as, as patience, but it's not the words that used, that's used here. It's the word makrothumeia, or makrothumeia. And it doesn't mean the same thing. And maybe you recognize some of that word, macro, as opposed to micro. But macro, it means large. A macro lens on a ca camera captures the whole scene. Uh, Macroeconomics has to deal with the whole of the economy. We use it to mean the big picture. But the word actually means distant. And the reason why you get the big picture is because you're standing at a distance and can see it all, macro. And the second half of the word, thumos, means anger or outbursts of anger. And so literally the word means distant anger. Angry outbursts are far from you. Whatever was said to you, whatever was done, whatever was not done that you think should have been done or whatever was offensive or annoying or irritating, all of it, no matter how severe, if you're walking in the Spirit, your anger is far away from you. It's like you've taken it and put it into a ball and thrown it into the sea and the waves have carried it off. You are restrained. You don't retaliate. It's a restraint that does not retaliate. It's anger that is far away from you. And you know what? If you belong to God, you know what He's going to do? He is going to bring people into your life who push your buttons, who press you, who irritate you, and it's not going to be the devil bothering you. It's going to be God doing it. And He's going to put people into your life who ought to be named Splinter because that's what they're going to feel like. And God has brought them there to teach you to be like Him. So what do you mean? Well, however irritating or selfish or proud or whatever it is, however they are to you, is, is how you have been and still are to God. And God is creating for you an opportunity for you to treat other people as He has treated you. So the next time you're annoyed, you feel yourself getting annoyed, anger rising up, Maybe at a coworker, maybe at a spouse, maybe at children, right? The Lord's chosen instrument for the sanctification of his people. <laughs> the next time you're frustrated, remember, really remember, whatever's happened to you, whatever is is is, is happening to you, irritating you, you have done the same thing to God, and to a much greater degree. And he has every reason not only to be annoyed, but to be furious with you. And he's not. His arms are open to receive you and to welcome you in, to embrace you, and he will never turn you away in frustration. As a Christian, you are never going to receive an outburst of the anger of God against you, ever. You're never going to approach him 
having sinned, having offended Him, you are never going to approach God and hear God say, go away. I'm tired of you. God does not treat His children that way. The redemption, the reconciliation, uh, we read it this morning, the throne of grace is always open for those who are in Christ. In any wound that does come from the hand of God, it's never born out of anger. It only comes out of love for you, to discipline you, and to make you more like Him. It comes from Him as a blessing to cut off a sin or some other thing out of your life or to train you in patience which always produces a benefit. He is at work for your good always. In Jeremiah, he says, in the New Covenant, I will never stop doing good to my people. God, if you're a Christian, God never stops doing good to you, even when you frustrate Him or do things that would frustrate you to Him. That's the kind of patience that we're talking about here. It's a patience that does not get angry or irritated with people who otherwise might make you angry. And you see how this goes with peace, don't you? A person easily disturbed, a person impatient can never have peace. A person with a quick and a hot temper, they won't have it. Uh, that's a, a work of the flesh and it's a, opposed to the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. Fits of anger, enmity, strife and the like, they oppose peace and joy and patience. One will tear down the other all the time. They're incompatible. And so when you feel those things rising in you, then pray and flee from the temptation and, and wrestle with yourself and trust the Lord to make your wrestling effective. And you oppose the works of the flesh that are in you, not by trusting in yourself or your own determination, but in the power and the Spirit of God. You go forward to put to death what is fleshly in you, what is sinful in you, and you do it by walking in the Spirit. And when you do that, you will begin to practice patience. And with continued practice and patience, you will grow in patience and grow in Christ-likeness. And this will equip you to live in this fallen world and bear all of the trials that come. To bear them up well and to bear up under difficult circumstances with difficult people. Now, there are so many verses on this in the New Testament. Let's, uh, let's, let's look at a few of them, actually. Uh, Luke 8.15 Luke 8.15 From the parable of the sower in Luke As for that, the seed in good soil They are those who, hearing the word Hold it fast And in an honest and good heart And bear fruit with, with patience as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Really came to appreciate this verse the past week when I was reading it. You know how many times that I speak to believers who are troubled because they just don't seem to have the fruit they want to see in their lives? It's just not there that they have struggles that they are yet to overcome. They want to be more like Jesus, but it just seems so slow in coming. Well, what are they? 
Well, according to this verse, they are a seed in good soil. They bear fruit with patience. You say, what does that mean? Well, it means that growth takes time. And we ought to have patience with God as He's working on us. And in a sense, we ought to have patience with ourselves as God is at work in us. You know, the seed produces a hundredfold. That's a great harvest. But guess what? It took time. It didn't grow up overnight. No field in the world grows up overnight. And a believer grows. Everyone who is in Christ is a new creature in Christ. They grow. If you aren't growing, you're dead. But they don't all grow it the same way. And they don't all have the same yield. Some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. And so you need to practice patience. Trusting in the means of grace. Going to the Lord in prayer. Trusting that He will work in you. And He will. How fast? Wait patiently. And strive patiently. Another verse is 1 Peter 3.20. It speaks of God being patient in the days of Noah. While Noah was building the boat, the New Testament tells us he was a preacher of righteousness. And while he was building the boat and preaching, God was restraining his anger against the sin of the people alive in Noah's day. But uh, we think of God as restraining. Restraint really isn't the right word. You know, the flood is coming as if the flood was coming and, and God is reluctant and He's holding the flood back, but He really wants to let it go. You know, he, he isn't saying here, I really want to flood the world, but because I'm patient, I'm going to wait. Well, that may be how we think, think about it, but that's not patience. It's not. It's just, it's just anger in a cage, rage in a cage, pent-up anger uh, that's been, been, been cuffed back. It's like a vicious dog on a leash, ready to erupt at the slightest provocation. Listen, that's not patience. In fact, that's not even Christian. It's not good. It's not to be condemned, but it's to be repented of. Anger raging in the heart that just doesn't come out of the mouth is, is nothing to be proud of. It's like a vicious dog in a cage and we don't want our patience to be like that. That's not what we're called to here. That's not, the, that's not the patience that the Spirit produces. And the reason the Spirit doesn't produce that kind of patience is well because it's not patience and it's certainly not what God is like. He is waiting in Noah's day so that people would hear the message. That would save them. He is waiting patiently so that people would be saved, which is made clear in Peter's Next epistle, 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So why is He patient? So that they would come to repentance and not perish. God doesn't want the people there in Noah's day to perish. God was patient in order to do them good. Noah is a, a preacher of righteousness and God is giving everyone who heard him time to get into the boat and be saved. And in fact, the reason why any of us are saved here today is because the Lord was patient with us. He should have and could have sent each and every individual to hell the moment they offended him. He could have. You come out of the womb, sin, 
Off you go. Well, God didn't do that. He was patient. He was patient and patient to give time so that the relationship could be restored and you be saved. So the patience of God here, it has an aim. It has a goal, right? Why is this so important? Because when we think of patience, we think of holding back anger, holding it back so that I don't burst out against another person. That's the goal of being patient. That's not the goal of being patient. Look at what this verse says. His aim is to do good to the people that he is angry with. His goal is not to tear them down. His goal is that they would hear, repent, believe, get into the boat, be saved. And that's what our patience ought to look like. If I'm in a situation that requires resolution and it's difficult, then the goal of patience in that situation is not just holding myself back from saying, unhurt, saying hurtful things. The goal of patience is to calmly attain a resolution, to resolve the problem, to restore the relationship, to restore understanding without adding conflict. That's the goal. One more. One more verse, Colossians 1 9 uh, through 11. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience. What's the goal of prayer? Knowledge of His will, spiritual wisdom, and understanding. It's so the Colossian believers can walk in a manner worthy of their calling. That's why Paul says, we have been praying for you. And when they do that, walk in a manner worthy of their calling, they will be pleasing to God and they will bear fruit and they will increase in their knowledge of Him and they will be strengthened with power and might. Why? Why although so you have prayer that leads to a knowledge of His will. So prayer that leads to a knowledge of His will. Knowledge of His will that leads to being pleasing to Him. And the result of that is you have endurance and patience. And I think the one thing you see here very obviously is patience isn't easy. It takes prayer, the knowledge of God, knowledge of the Word, and most importantly, His power and His might. And that comes through the work of the Spirit in your life. And so if you say, I just can't be patient. Well, the good news is that it's primarily a work of the Holy Spirit of God in your life. The bad news is if you don't have patience with those who offend you and those who disrupt your direction and cause chaos in your life, if you don't have patience with them, at the very least, you're not Christ-like and not bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And if you don't think that's a problem, you don't, think that's a, you don't know what so-and-so did. You don't know, you think splinter is a, is a name for this person. You don't know what it's like. Talking to them is like, is like having a, a sandpaper on my ears. If you're like that towards other people and you don't think it's a problem, I'm justified. You're probably not a Christian. And you probably do not have the Spirit of God working in you. Because the Spirit of God 
at the very least makes you see that your impatience is more of a, of a problem and a greater sin than whatever the other person is doing to make you lose your patience. And so if you live with other people or you know other people or you're around other people and you just they irritate you so much, that's not what God's going to hold you accountable for. You get angry at other people, fits of rage, lose your temper. When you stand before God, you don't know what so-and-so did is not going to be an excuse. God's going to say, yeah, I'll deal with them. I'm talking to you. I commanded you to be patient. I commanded you to be gracious. I commanded you to strive for those things. I commanded you to walk in the Spirit. Why did you think because somebody annoyed you, you could so easily and readily cast off all of my decrees? We're going to be held accountable for how we respond to other people. They're going to be held accountable for what they do or say or provoke in us. But they're provoking in us never, ever, ever, ever justifies us sinning against them and against God. No matter what. You, you can't control what others do to you, but you can control how you respond to them. And if you don't have it, patience, where do you get it? MacArthur in his commentary on the verse in Colossians says, God is the source of patience. Christ is the example of patience. And the Holy Spirit is the dispenser of this patience. And that's where you go. You go to the all-patient one. If he is, you know, if you, if you wanted to learn to, uh, to, to play hockey really well, and you had your choice between uh, you can take lessons from me or you can take lessons from Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> You're going to take lessons from Wayne Gretzky because he's going to be able to teach you a lot. I, might, I probably can't even teach you how to skate right. <laughs> he's going to be able to teach you how to play hockey. If you want to learn to be patient, go to the one whose patience is extreme. Go to God. And he is able to teach you because he knows patience so well. God is the source. Christ is the perfect example. You know, it's been tested. I just, you think of the life of Christ. Know how, how many opportunities for irritation he had in his life. His disciples never understood. Everyone was always out to get him. He would, you know, he, he, he would preach a sermon, clear as could be, irresistible wisdom, and the disciples would come up and say, I don't get it. God is able to help us to be patient. And He will help you to be patient. And He will give you peace. Ask Him. Seek it. Seek and you will find. And then get ready. Because God is going to give you opportunities to practice peace and patience. <laughs> and practice is a good word. Because if you want to get better at anything, it takes practice. It takes work. It takes time. Time spent with God. Time practicing what you learned in that time spent with Him. But you can have patience and peace. It will come if you seek Him for it. Repent of when you lose it and strive to practice it. Maybe a good thing this afternoon 
to go to the Lord if you haven't already and tell Him you're sorry for all of the grumblings and complainings and outbursts for the thoughts. And then go to Him for help and for strength to be peaceable and patient so that the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Because that's, that's what we're after. A kind of peace that when someone looks in and looks on your life and they see it, they see you, so you don't have any reason for peace. If I were in his shoes, I would be losing my mind. A kind of peace that passes understanding. And what does it do? It guards your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Go to Him for peace if you don't have it. Go to Him for the Holy Spirit if you don't have Him. Go to Him for salvation if you don't know Him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would work in the hearts of Your people. Lord, sometimes it is a difficult line to distinguish between needing to grow in peace and not having the Spirit at all. But Lord, You know. You are the one who searches hearts. You know where everybody in this room stands before You. You know what they need. You know if their profession of faith has been false and they need to come and make things right with You for the very first time. To turn away from this world and, and become a Christian. To repent of their enmity, strife, and fits of rage. And ask You for forgiveness and confess their sins and trust in Christ. You know. And you know if they're a new believer who is really struggling to be patient or if they've been a believer for some time and they seem to be advancing in other areas but in this one particular spot, it's a battle. Lord, I pray that they would overcome. I pray that the young believers would grow I pray that those who do not know this kind of peace, they hear about the kind of peace that makes enemies friends and they say, yeah, right, Lord, they don't know you. I pray that you would draw them near, that they would have the peace with you. That they would no longer be your enemies, but be reconciled to your table. Lord, you know all things. You are able to sort out the hearts of your people. I pray that you would, Lord, and thank you that you have given us such a great example of peace. Thank you that you are patient with us, and thank you that you, Lord, are working to make your people more like you. But Lord, how many times do believers say, I want to be more like Jesus? Lord, that is what you want for us. That is your will for us, our sanctification. And so we take great heart knowing that if we want to be like you, you want us to be like you, and you are working to make our labor and striving effective. We thank you for this, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray and give thanks. All glory to you, Lord. Amen.